Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 386 of the podcast. It is September 29th, 2020. Joining me today is Steve Spear. He had reached out and he wanted to share some recollections of one of his most influential teachers and mentors, Hajime Oba, often known as Mr. Oba in lean circles. Um, he passed away earlier this month at age 75. Now, I never had the chance to learn directly from Mr. Oba. I wasn't able to meet him, unfortunately, but he is really legendary in lean circles. And I know many people who were deeply influenced very directly by Mr. Oba. I hope to interview more of them in the near future. Um, I do want to express my deepest condolences to Mr. Oba's family, friends, and colleagues. Now, if you go to the blog post for this episode, uh, leanblog.org slash 386, I've linked to a classic Wall Street Journal article from 2001 that features Mr. Oba. It's called, How Does Toyota Maintain Quality? Mr. Oba's Hairdryer Offers a Clue. Um, so in today's episode, Steve talks about meeting Mr. Oba and how he learned from him as a PhD student. There's one story that Steve shares um, about sitting at his desk. He was thinking about a problem, and Mr. Oba told him, don't think, do. So you'll hear about that, and you'll hear more from Steve talking about the need to learn by doing and to test changes in experimental fashion. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. And again, you can find a link to it at leanblog.org slash 386. We're joined again, uh, a returning guest, um, Steve Spear. Among other things, he is, and, and you can fill in any other details if I miss Steve, but he's a, a principal at his company, HVE LLC. He's the author, of course, of uh, the outstanding book, The High Velocity Edge. He's the founder and co-creator of uh, software called c to solve and he's a senior lecturer at MIT. So, Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, thanks for having me back. And as you know, we've talked about before in various podcasts, you, know, you had the opportunity, of course, um, to learn very directly from Toyota through your studies and through your PhD work, which brings us to um, you know, our topic today, reflections on um, the legendary Mr. Oba from Toyota. Um, you know, really just give you the floor to, to share some memories and thoughts and recollections. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. So um, just as background, for those who didn't know Mr. Oba, um, he was the uh, first uh, um, head of Toyota's Supplier Support Center. And uh, that was created here in North America for the very simple reason that as Toyota tried to uh, um, globally localized, make each of their markets uh, more and more and more self-reliant, they became uh, increasingly dependent on the, the North American auto uh, supply network, um, which had uh, very, very little familiarity with Toyota's approach around quality, just-in-time, pulse systems, employee engagement, et cetera, et cetera. And so while Toyota was doing a ton of work on the um, really historic transformation at the NUMI plant, which had been a General Motors facility, and the stand-up uh, in Kentucky and then elsewhere, there was this need to help suppliers come to understand the basic thinking of Toyota. And so Mr. Or Mr. Oba's organization, this TSSC, um, became the uh, one of the sources for that much deeper understanding. Now, I think this reflects in part Toyota's uh, um, 
values in part Mr. Oba, but not only did Mr. Oba um, work with suppliers directly, he also took on his unpaying clients, uh, companies that did manufacturing, but did manufacturing outside that of the auto industry. And um, in reflecting about Mr. Oba, and this sort of is to build up that his life was uh, value-driven as much as it was uh, manufacturing or business-driven, is that um, in part, I think he took on these other clients to expand the experience set of his and his colleagues, you know, seeing products and processes and markets that they hadn't seen before. And you could say, well, that's sort of a little sort of a self-centered, selfish motivation. But part of it is I think Mr. Oba felt that he had something really profound uh, to share with uh, North American manufacturers. And if he had bandwidth to engage with people who had nothing to do with the auto industry, and then perhaps, you know, maybe they had products and processes, which really weren't that much more interesting than what was going on in autos anyway, it still was a way to spread the effect of uh, the Toyota production system, which fundamentally is a way to tap deeply into the innate problem-solving potential of people so they can better meet society's needs. And I think Mr. Oba saw this as an opportunity to expand the impact of that managerial mindset and that managerial system to have broader effect. Um, the, re- the reason I feel so convinced that a lot of what he did was um, for altruistic purposes is that TSSC over the years evolved from dealing with Toyota suppliers, because that was the pressing concern, to um, unaffiliated manufacturers to organizations which just have social purpose, uh, um, healthcare, feeding the homeless, putting up, um, or feeding the hungry, putting up homes for the homeless, and so on and so forth. And one last thing I'll just offer is uh, when I was in um, contact with Mr. Oba's family, uh, they said that uh, he had had a very long and really uh, passionate concern about the quality of drinking water in Africa. And they said if, you know, people really wanted to, um, do something uh, in honor of his memory, contributions in that direction would be uh, very much appreciated and, and highly appropriate. And so anyway, I think there's a, a, lot, a lot of dots we can connect that um, support the assertion that much of his life's work wasn't just about the business of cars and Toyota, but was really to take um, this really deep, profound thinking about how to make it uh, far easier for people to collaborate towards common purpose and do that so much better that that was really what was motivating him, that tapping into human potential. So um, anyway, I just want to offer that as sort of a, a color commentary background on Mr. Oba. Yeah, and and he passed away on um, September 4th. Um, I never had the, the good fortune, the opportunity to meet him. I've met and worked with a number of people who did work, um, the opportunity to learn from him. Um, you mentioned TSSC, uh, right. worked with Herman Miller. So I know some people yeah. from Herman Miller lineage, who had direct exposure to him. So I know his passing has touched um, very directly a number, great number of people in yeah. the lean community. And I'll, I'll make oh, sure absolutely. Link, I'll link to his obituary and different articles yeah. about his passing in the show notes. Yeah. And another guy who I know a long time since about 95, 96 is Bruce Hamilton, now head of um, the Greater Boston Manufacturing Partnership, um, referred affectionately within the lean community as the old lean dude. Uh, he's done this uh, really great video on... Um, uh, toast Kaizen and such. Right. Um, to his credit, Bruce was way ahead of the wave. He was doing lean before it was even called that. Um, yeah. He was, uh, when he was um, in his uh, 
executive role at United Electric in Watertown, Massachusetts. He had created this library and this training system, you know, pulling in anything he could get from Norman Bodek and all the others who were doing that very, very early work to understand what was going on in Japan. And, uh, you know, Bruce was another one of these. So I, I would characterize it in terms of relationships, not, not to diminish it, but um, sort of a, in a Karate Kid uh, analogy, um, maybe I was one of many Daniels to uh, Mr. Oba's Mr. Miyagi. Yeah. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because um, his way of teaching was very much a wax on, wax off, paint up, paint down um, inductive, immersive approach to learning what he was trying to teach. And uh, certainly Bruce is another one of those Daniels. And there are many others who feel uh, very appreciative of the opportunity to learn from Mr. Oba and uh, quite in his debt because that experience was um, so mind changing and so action changing and life changing as a consequence. Yeah. And yeah, about our, our friend Bruce, you know, that's a, a name he's bestowed, bestowed upon himself, old lean dude. So All right. A self-deprecating, uh, yeah. OLD becomes an acronym within old style. Right, right. Yeah. So, so uh, I'm glad you called Bruce. I didn't suspect that he uh, was. Who, what was the bully from Cobra Kai? I figured Bruce was another Daniel, not not the bully figure. No, definitely not the bully. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, Bruce's relation with so United Electric is uh, one of those companies where. Um, I think Mr. Oba got interested because of Bruce and uh, the people around Bruce who were really, really um, uh, convinced that they needed a different way and committed to learning by doing to uh, discover and understand what that different way was. Um, the work they were doing, it, it doesn't strike me as that that was uh, by product or process or market even um, a real source of insight for Mr. Oba, but it was a chance to expand his um, the population of his active, engaged, enthusiastic students. And Bruce certainly has been one for, you know, 30 years and counting. Yeah. And I'll, I'll reach out to Bruce. Maybe I can also do an interview with him and yep. some of his um, reflections. So when you talk about that, that teaching style, um, did, did you have direct contact with Mr. Oba during your PhD studies? And, and you yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, to this day, you know, I've had some very important mentors in my life. And I would count Mr. Oba as one, uh, Kent Bowen, who was my, uh, you know, chief advisor when I was doing my dissertation, Clay Christensen, certainly. I mean, a lot of people were willing to make a huge investment in me that um, the only way I could possibly reciprocate is uh, take what they taught me and try to reflect it forward because I can never pay them back. Sure. And um to, I still don't know if it was a deliberate setup. Kent and I were, had gone out west to visit a factory for a company. And ostensibly, it was because it was a, an interesting company with a long history and an, an, interesting, and an interesting product. It turned out also on that visit was Mr. Oba. And um, in hindsight, Mr. Oba was far more interesting than the factory and the, and the company. And I just don't know, and Kent won't tell me, whether the trip was really just to visit that factory and that company or was the setup to see if I would uh, grab the hook and be curious enough about Mr. Oba to do anything with it. Anyway, I did grab the hook, but here's the, the first um, sort of uh, anecdote and sort of insight about Mr. Oba and this Toyota production, production system management system when it's practiced in very, very high fidelity. So we're inside this factory and uh, 
they're making a very, very sophisticated electronic product and they're using very, very sophisticated industrial machinery to do that. And the, uh, the normal way to take such a tour of a facility like that and the way in which the tour was actually organized was you start in uh, receiving and work your way step-by-step-by-step uh, by step by step, um, through shipping. And the reason you do that is you get to see um, sort of um, nondescript raw materials take magnificent form through the, um, through the interaction with these marvelous pieces of uh, uh, technology. And so we started the tour and we saw this bell and we saw that whistle and we saw this, uh, you know, uh, chrome-plated gizmo. And after about 15, 20 minutes, um, Mr. Oba um, interrupted in a, you know, polite way, but in a very certain way that he was kind of tired of seeing things that way. He wanted to go to shipping. And we got to shipping and um, of all the things in the factory, he started paying a, a tremendous amount of attention to the person who was actually loading boxes onto trucks. And um, after he did that to understand what they were shipping, where they were shipping, what their expectations were in terms of shipping, how they were actually doing, how they learned about what to ship and all of that, Mr. Oba's next question then was, um, and the stuff you ship, who gives it to you? And and, and I just want to point out that the phrase, it didn't hit me at the time, it's only in hindsight, it wasn't where from where did it come? It was from whom did it come? And, uh, oh, it came from Alice. So we went back and met Alice. And then a similar thing about, you know, what work does Alice do on behalf of whom does she do her work? From, from whom does she get the things she needs for her work, both material and information? And we did this steady progressive walk um, back through the factory. Um, now, a couple of things that hit me at first. I mean, the first thing was... Uh, Mr. Oba, after we were done with this uh, sort of backwards tour from shipping through the preceding steps, we went into a conference room and um, on a whiteboard, he did a schematic representation of the facility in terms of uh, the flow of work, flow of material, flow of information, but then identifying where they would have problems of scrap, of defects, of delays, of uh, starving, of uh, blocking, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing that was uh, clearly impressive to his hosts was um, that even though he hadn't seen those problems occur, it had a huge amount of face validity because that's when they started taking out notepads and pens, trying to record and trying to guess how he could um, predict with such accuracy where they were having problems. Hmm. And um, just as an aside, I saw Mr. Oba do sort of the same magic the following day and the day after. And my, my first interpretation of that was, um, well, here's a guy with already at that point, you know, you know, 20, 30 years of experience at Toyota. He's probably seen um, best in class in so many different industries. And he was comparing this in a sort of in an analogy fashion um, to what he had seen as best practice. And he was showing them how they were not best practice. And that, that um, thought balloon got popped Soon thereafter, when we started going to a place and Mr. Obus was clearly excited, um, and I asked why, and he said, because he'd never seen that type of product made with those types of processes. It would be a novel situation even for him. And yet, using the same approach, it took him not more than 15, 20 minutes to understand enough to generate the schematic and identify all the pain points. And it it was out of that that I realized that Mr. Oba really was the interesting thing on this trip 
because he had a way of looking at, at systems, very complex ones, um, from a first principles basis, uh, rather than from an analogy case by case basis. And um, a lot of what I wrote in that first article, decoding the DNA of the Toyota production system, you know, and the rules by how you design a, a process, you know, and then I translated that a little bit and updated it. It's like, I think chapter six in my book, I could have really called that decoding Mr. Oba's DNA, not Toyota. Well, anyway, be that as it may. But the, the real point, that that's what sort of sunk in most immediately. But the thing that really um, grabbed me over the years, and the reason I want to share this with you and your audience, is you start thinking about that act of going to shipping and in shipping, finding the shipping clerk, who but by... by in most situations has got probably the least glamorous job in, in any organization, right? Putting brown boxes on brown trucks. And yet Mr. Oba was really genuinely interested in the experience of that person and genuinely interested in the experience of that person because that person, um, their ability to perform their job affected how the customer experienced the efforts of this uh, collective called the factory. And um, from there, Mr. Oba's uh, next concern was if this person is uh, and their ability to perform their work is representative of how the factory is behaving, then everything flowing into that person is the next most important thing in this entire system. And that's why Mr. Oba said to the person in shipping, from whom did you get the things you need? Oh, Alice. And what became real evident is that uh, the way he thought of systems, despite the sophistication of the product and the sophistication of the process, the technical sophistication, it was really about people doing things so that they could create value that someone else would appreciate. And um, that has really, um, once I got it, and it's, I have to admit it didn't come immediately, but once I got it, it was such a compelling message about how we think about organizations, how we think about systems, how we think about um, offices, factories, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, is that if we're in a position to influence their design, if we're in a position to influence um, their behavior, their dynamics, we always have to think in terms of, are we increasing or de decreasing the ability of each individual to do something that will be valued by somebody else. And, you know, you talk about, and I'll, I'll stop with this, but, you know, we think about all the different ways in which we get, what do they call the KPIs and other metrics of performance. And Mr. Oban, that, in, in, in that simple act of going to shipping and saying, who is dependent on you and on whom are you dependent? He took all those KPIs and narrowed it down to a single focal, which was um, what you're doing does it count? And if we can change the system so what you're doing counts more, we're going in the right direction. And if what we're doing um, uh, takes what you're doing and makes it count less, we're going in the wrong direction. And all those KPIs, you know, all it narrowed down to, are we making your efforts more valued by somebody else? Boom, that was it. So anyway, I wanted to be sure to share that with you all. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, the way you were telling the story of looking back upstream, and asking who, was he looking for a person's name like Alice? Or a lot of times people would say, well, who do you, well, final inspection sends that to me. Was he really focusing on names and individuals over? You know, Mark, that is such a good question. 
Um, Mr. Oba wanted a name. And I'll tell you why he wanted a name. So let, let me set up this contrast. Um, that's a great leading question. So um, we often we often do this exercise when I teach, when I train. It's you have to build a little factory to make paper airplanes. And um, one of the failure modes is that people don't ask the customer who's standing at the side of the exercise, at the side of the simulation. And we all laugh about it, blah blah blah. And they say, "All right, well, let's think about this. The work you do." Um, when you're done and you bundle it up and you hand it off, who do you hand it off to? And at best, they can name a department or a function. They can never name a person. And it's like, it's like, all right, well, what does that function um, expect from you? And, and they have no answer. And similarly, when you say when you ask them on, on whom are you dependent, they can't come up with a name. And then you say, well, have you ever had the conversation with that person about what you need from him or her to do your work effectively? And, and more often than not, and, and look, you know, you, you, your listeners can do the test drive on this, you know, you know, on whom do you really depend and on uh, who depends on you? And do you have a shared understanding? All right. So here, here's where that plays out is that um, most people don't have a good answer to that. But do you think about why we work in organizations and not just sort of individual contractors is because there's something about the collaboration that creates the magic of the finished product or the finished service. We can't do it on our own. You know, we can't, we can't be independent contractors. And the collaboration implies dependencies. And dependencies mean that there are relationships inside an organization that, um, you know, we have two-way expectations in terms of uh, what our relationship will be so that together we're more productive than we could possibly have imagined individually. And I think what Mr. Oba was doing was uh, by asking from whom, it was a quick pop quiz to see if people really got a, uh, understood um, the relationships, the network of relationships in which they were embedded to more fully express their potential. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I'll give you, I'll give you just one more observation on that, that sort of uh, supports that assertion that Oba and his uh, really thoughtful colleagues thought about um, relationships between people. So I remember asking um, the justification for pull systems versus push, you know, for just in time versus scheduled. And, uh, you know, you, you get the very rational answer about how um, push is a very fragile system because it's a schedule being confronted by reality and reality always gets a veto, blah, blah, blah. And you get a, a very rational explanation that just in time, and this is a great separate conversation, creates a, a dynamically self-regulating um, system, which is all true. Mm-hmm. But when, I remember when I talked to the, the Toyota people and asked them why they did what they did, there'd always be the rational explanation. But then there'd be the, um, the, uh, the emotional one. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, so when you asked about just in time and they talked about this whole self-synchronization thing, they say, look, you know, in order to build a car, um, you know, at, at the start, someone is in time and distance so physically removed from the person who buys the car. But here's the thing. If we set up our system such that if someone wants a car, it triggers the generation of the car or the replacement of the thing that's been taken. Someone could be working way, way upstream generating spark plugs or some tiny component. And every time they're asked um, for another box of that little thing, they can say to themselves, isn't that great? I'm being asked for this 
this other box of stuff because the last box delighted someone enough that they bought it and someone wants some more. So anyway, um, you know, tying that back to this Mr. Oba starting and shipping, um, it was very important to him and it is very important to the folks who really, really understand this uh, really profound management system that the work you do, you understand it's appreciated and it's not appreciated by a machine. It's not appreciated by a box. It's not appreciated by a building. It's appreciated by an individual. And uh, what he was demonstrating, even in that first interaction, was that um, you have to be really clear as to what the relationships are so you can see where the appreciation comes from and to whom appreciation is owed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think of, I can't help but think of, um, you know, flows through a hospital. You could do a similar exercise. You could ask the physician who's looking at a test result, from whom did that clinical lab result come from? Yep. And the person in the lab could be asked, where did that, from whom did that specimen come from? Do they have a name or do they just say phlebotomy? Right. ER. And, and I've right. seen a lot of cases where people literally don't know the people in those functions. That's where the right. finger pointing comes into play. It's, it's easier to blame those anonymous jerks in some other department. And yep. when you know people and when you know you I've had an opportunity to do those process walks with people in hospitals and they start to meet each other and learn their names and understand the process. So when you talk about like, you know, the, the rational and the emotional, I, I can see those connections. It's not just understanding what happens, but it's the relationships yep. amongst those people. And Mark, look, it's a beautiful thing because once you start talking in terms of relationship, it changes the nature of how people view their work Mm -hmm. from being uh, just a technical pursuit or a functional pursuit to something that someone else will appreciate. So you you see it um, in uh, labs where you say to someone, well, what what are you doing here? And you could have a technician working in a lab and they're preparing a a slide and putting stain on a sample and they'll they'll explain technically what they're doing. Um, And it's important they have pride in that work, but it's a little discouraging because they don't understand that work in terms of the, um, the value creating experience. Now we've, we've been in unfortunately too rare, but we've been in some facilities where you ask that technician, what he or she is doing. And she says, I'm making the doctor smarter. Mm. That doctor has a patient and uh, I can actually see their name on the, on the label. And, uh, the reason that doctor uh, ordered a test is because they don't know. That doctor doesn't know really the condition of the patient. And the work I'm doing now is to make the daughter, doctor smarter about the patient so the doctor can be better at making that patient uh, um, well off. Yeah. And, uh, you know, th- this even occurred, um, you know, Rick Shannon, who I first met in Pittsburgh and has since gone on from uh, Pittsburgh to Philadelphia um, to Virginia then to Duke now. Um, I remember when he was starting to really buy into this uh, whole mindset, you know, absorbed somewhat from Toyota, somewhat from Alcoa, he realized he had to start explaining um, prevention of infection to everybody, not just that doctor here and a nurse there and so on. And uh, they started explaining um, infection prevention because they were worried about uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, surgical site infection, uh, uh, central line um, infections, and so on. And uh, one day he walked into, uh, you know, a a room where they did various procedures, and it looked way better organized. And uh, 
he asked around who had done the organization and it turned out it was the housekeeping staff. And, and the reason they had done it, they, you know, for the first time, someone had explained sort of germ theory to them. And they saw all the stuff that was on a rack and fell on the floor and got put back on the rack. And the, the guy who technically, functionally, when you said, well, what does that person do? Oh, they mop a floor, they empty waste paper baskets. Now this person is realizing and, and came out and said, you know, I didn't realize it till someone told me, but my job is to keep the patient safe. That's why I do what I do. And I saw all these chains of transmission that I had the um, insight and the power and the creativity to break. Um, you know, I, I think that story from Rick is a, a really good reflection of Mr. Oba's idea that you're creating this network of relationships. And within each relationship and the network as a whole, the point is to do something that someone else will perceive as valuable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it's interesting to think through the different ways that work could be described. If I, uh, I slice this specimen that's encased in paraffin and I put it on a slide versus I'm helping a physician or I'm helping detect cancer or right. I'm helping rule out cancer right. based yeah. on what, what is seen through that. Um, yeah. I always appreciate organizations um, that, that have this mindset of everybody a caregiver regardless of their, their right. role or function. And you, you yep. see that very strong in organizations um, where somebody would, you know, they'd say, well, what do you do? How, do you, is your job to mop the floor or are you part of the infection control team? Or right. are you part of the patient care team? Um, you know, uh, one thing, I mean, you know, sometimes hospitals want to replace lower level jobs with robots, you know, automated carts that drag materials right. um, throughout the hospital. But, you know, the one, the one argument, even if there's a rational case for having a robot do that work, yep. a robot can't stop and smile at a family member right. walking through the hospital. A robot isn't going to stop and give directions if yeah. it's confused. Um, right. Yeah, yeah we, we saw something similar to that. I'm glad it's a story I hadn't remembered in a long time, so I appreciate the reminder. Um, it was working with uh, uh, specialty uh you know, nutrition and dietary functions. Mm -hmm. I think in Mass General over here. And, um, you know, it's kind of a Rick Shannon approach, which was uh, as um, you can think about the people who uh, prepare meals, it's in a remote part of the hospital, deliver meals, you know, they're just, they're just schlepping food, right? But when um, the more senior leadership started explaining to people, um, nutrition and diet and how it influenced the well-being of the patient, uh, the, the dietary aids, these are the uh, young men and women who, um, you know, carry trays into rooms, you know, all of a sudden they started recognizing foods that got eaten, foods that didn't get eaten, foods that got thrown away, foods that patient families were buying on the side to, you know, to supplement, complement, replace what had been ordered. And uh, they became part of the treatment team. Mm -hmm. and, and I appreciate you use that word, right? Because uh, it, it's one thing for a senior leader to say, oh, you know, we're all caregivers. All right. It's one thing to say it, but you actually have to do the hard work to explain to everybody how their piece of work contributes to the care um, to make that so. Um, yeah, it's more than just a phrase. Yeah. And I think, you know, kind of just from a very personal perspective, um, you know, my grandfather passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and his, you know, his 90, he was 93. And during some of his um, hospitalizations, the biggest risk to him were errors coming from dietary services. He had trouble mm -hmm. swallowing. 
And there are these products, you know, called thickeners that are literally, you know, put into water to make water more viscous and uh-huh. easier for him to swallow. That would get forgotten. And um, he had diabetes and, and sometimes the food orders didn't properly um, reflect that. So, you know, family members <laughs> are there sort of playing defense, say, no, right. that's wrong. No, that's inappropriate. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, so it, it's, it's easy to think of it as just food, but there's right. real clinical um, purpose there or risk. Yeah. It, it's, it's a funny story because it has no um, negative clinical consequence, but I do remember someone being hospitalized um, and uh, they, they, they had had an allergic reaction to eggs and it was the third day in a row that their breakfast included eggs. <laughs> like, like, what are you, y'all trying to kill me here? <laughs> so, um, but anyway, back to, back to Mr. Oba, you right. know, that was uh, a, a key thing um, that a key theme of his work was that uh, the work need be purposeful um, in creating perceived value and that the person doing the work understand um, the appreciation that their effort warranted. Yeah. You know, you weren't just tightening a nut or a bolt. You were, you know, you, you were making a car safe for somebody and you should understand that they, they knew that and they thanked you for it. Yeah. So you talk about purpose and one other thing I want to talk to you about or ask you about um, a couple of weeks ago, um, Toyota had put out uh, an article through their own releases um, came from Japan um, um, in, in English talking about um, Akio Toyota, a mm. CEO who no doubt was, was influenced by Mr. Oba and others in, in the, the lineage of um, you know, yep. success. Uh, thinkers there, uh, the, the the leaders of, of, of a lot of those efforts. So one thing that was interesting is that Akio Toyota is teaching classes internally to Toyota about the Toyota production system. And he was teaching managers and people at different levels. And, you know, part of, you know, it would be something, or part of my reaction was to look at it and say, well, why aren't they having to teach that in the classroom? I thought they're living that every day. But then the one thing Mr. Toyota emphasized in terms of purpose for improvement work was this very, very strong um, uh, uh, prioritization on making work easier, Mm -hmm. which is a different way of framing quality or efficiency or other things we might look at and might have measures back to your questions about KPIs. Um, So there's maybe both rational and emotional justifications for that emphasis. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great recollection. And um, I think what uh, Mr. Toyota was doing was uh, not surprisingly consistent with Mr. Oba's point of view, which was um, the reason you're coming to work is to do something valuable for somebody else. And if we want to measure um, our success in terms of Kaizen, we can simply ask, um, was it easier for you to create value or not? And if it was, fantastic. We moved in the right direction. And if it wasn't easier for you to create value um, for somebody else, uh, then we may not have moved in the right direction. And again, it, you know, it, it really sort of uh, makes far less complicated uh, this whole idea of uh, generating, recording, calculating, reporting KPIs. It's just like, hey, Mark, was that easier? And to the person who depends on you, was that better? <laughs> it's two questions. Uh, yes and yes. Good. Today was a good day. Yeah, no and no, that today was a bad day. And no and yes, then tomorrow we, we got to improve upon that. 
you know, sometimes it's a judgment call or a feeling. And I know some people would cringe and say, well, what do you mean? It has to be measurable. I'm like, well, well, that's a measurement, right? Are you happy or sad? That's, you know, that's a, that's a measurement. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes we can spend too much time trying to uh, quantify the measurement of something. Yeah. Um, and if we can't get to the quantification, we said, well, we make the mistake of saying we can't measure it quantitatively. And then we jump to, it's not worth mm-hmm. measuring. Point. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a lot of important things we miss when we jump from it's hard to measure to it's not worth measuring. Yeah. That's a really good point. And you, you talk about um, meaning and purpose and I've got this, this is a, a proof copy, Steve, we're going to send you a copy of this book that we put together of some of Mr. O'Neill's speeches. Yep, yep. And, you know, I'm just recalling, you know, of his three questions, you know, we've talked about this before, um, you know, that everybody in the workplace should be able to say yes without reservation to, am I given the tools, training, resources, and encouragement needed to make a contribution to the organization? That's not the mm-hmm. end of the sentence. That adds meaning to my life. And, and that right. those last words are really powerful. It's not just yep. about make things more efficient for the organization. Yep. Yeah. No, Paul, Paul also was one of those rare true believers about uh, such principles. So one other thing I, I think you were going to touch on, um, you know, thinking back uh, to Mr. Oba, you know, you've talked about how he looked at processes. Um, you also had some thoughts about how he looked at learning, I think. Yeah. So, one of so right? again, back to the uh, Mr. Miyagi Daniel thing, uh, Mr. Oba was um, very into the, uh, learn by doing, but also learn while doing. Hmm. And, and I'll share with you a um, couple of couple of stories to make that point more clear. So I interned inside his organization for a, an extended period, you know, literally early Monday morning flying to uh, Kentucky or as part of a team trying to stand up a first-tier supplier, then coming back Thursday evening, after spending four weeks, and you'll appreciate what this means, being uh, really pulled through the keyhole of uh, Mr. Uh, Oba's um, Karate Kid training method, only to then spend Friday getting um, a similar uh, intellectual exertion with uh, Kent Bowen, who is uh, my advisor. So Mr. Oba, you know, when he, when he saw me sitting there thinking through a problem, he admonished me not to think, but to do. And it didn't make sense because here I was a graduate student, you know, I thought my job was to think. And what I um, eventually appreciated with Mr. Oba is that what I was thinking about was a problem. And the reason we had a problem is because we had an understanding of a situation that was that was adequate only to have problems. It, it, if it was more adequate, we wouldn't have the problems to even think about. And so he, here Mr. Oba's uh, attitude was that, you already had um, experiences and those experiences have formed a mental model. And, and together those experiences plus, um, plus that mental model was good enough for a problem. And so if you sat there and thought, use it, drawing upon those same experiences, employing the same mental models, guess what? You would keep getting a problem. If you did it a second time, you get the problem again and again and again. So why was Mr. Oba so much into this um, don't think do? Um, in the act of doing, you have another experience and maybe it changes your mental model a little bit, or or maybe in addition, you have the additional experience and a change in perspective and it changes the mental model. 
And if you change the experiences on what you're drawing and the mental models you're employing, if you change those, you change the outcome. And maybe, just maybe, if you do that well enough or often enough or lucky enough, you change the outcome to go from problem to success. Right. And, uh, you know, the thing I would add to that is that, um, you know, Mr. Oba was advocating this don't think do. You know, I met him in 1995, 96. And now the don't think do with different semantic labels is all the rage in literature, right? So managerial literature. So the lean startup stuff is also a don't think do mindset, which is you got an idea, you got a potential market. Well, you know, go test your idea because the more you think about it, the more you're going to stuck with it's just an idea. But if you test it out and get feedback, uh, you know, eventually you can uh, iterate and evolve towards something successful. Right. The folks in the agile community in the IT world, it's a similar don't think do mindset, right? Which is, um, You've got a program. You have to develop a product way downstream. Um, you can think about it all you want, but you don't have the right answer. You're never going to get the right answer because you don't have it now. And until you start generating more experience and more perspective, you can't get to the right answer. So a lot of their um, nomenclature, minimally viable product. Why? Because that's the smallest thing you can do. It's the minimal, not the maximal, right? Um, Right. Uh, why do you have a sprint? Because you want to do as quickly as possible. Why do you have a scrum or, um, you know, whatever they call those reviews it is because now that you've sprinted to the minimal thing, the minimal doing, you want to reflect on what you've learned from the sprint um, and from the minimally viable product. So you can plan out the next minimal and the next sprint to it. So anyway, um, it turns out, don't think, do, you know, and again, with with discipline, with uh, thoughtfulness, with open-mindedness, um, all those qualifiers, don't think, do is the way you discover. Right. Um, if all you do is think, you're, you're, you're trapped into the space you already experience and you already know. Right. And uh, so anyway, I think um, you, you, you piece these two things together, which is uh, Mr. Oba's uh, sense of value. And Paul O'Neill's like, you, I think you very correctly um, interlaced, which is... Uh, you know, you should have, it's fair to expect that the work you do, um, you understand how it improves someone else's lot in life. And your lot in life is also improved by doing the work. And that if um, in any way you're disappointed by the experience or your experience is disappointing somebody else, it's improvable. It's not written or locked in that disappointment is in, inevitable. It's just that that's what you're capable of now. And so if you want to be capable of not disappointing, but actually delighting someone else and being delighted by um, your own experience, the way to do that is stop thinking and just do. And, and, and of course, it's a loaded do, which is don't think do, but in such a way that you're going to get very fast feedback to right. learn and improve and get better. Well, and that's where it's just get repeat back. And then um, I, I know you need to go. Um, the word test, I think, is is really important, right? There's a difference between mm-hmm. doing and testing. Testing implies some feedback loop and confirmation. Right. The final thing I'll share, I, I learned this uh, from Pascal Dennis, who is a, a Toyota person in Ontario. One thing that Pascal really helped me understand was the idea of, like, we don't know the root cause because we talked about it in front of a whiteboard. Right, right, right. We have a hypothesis and yeah, yeah. go and test countermeasures, which may prove or disprove that you're somewhere near the root cause. Bingo. And that's a totally right. different mindset. And I'm really great. Yeah. That. yeah if, if it's on a whiteboard, it's a guess. <laughs> 
And until you go out and put, you know, test the guests in practice and find out what's wrong with your guests, you don't get any smarter. I mean, you have a pretty whiteboard, yeah, (laughs) but you don't have an answer. Hypothesis sounds so much smarter than guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm drawing down on Richard Feynman, who said, you know, what do scientists do? He said, they guess. And then they go out and they run experiments to find out what's wrong with the guess. Yeah. So there you have it. Yeah. Well, Steve, uh, thank you for, for sharing, you know, uh, not only some, you know, some personal reflections, but some really important lessons um, that come from Mr. Oba. So um, it's, it's always a pleasure uh, to hear from you and to talk with you. So thank you uh, for being here today. Oh, you're welcome for that. And Mark, thanks for the opportunity because, uh, you know, I imagine it came through at least a little bit. Uh, Mr. Oba was uh, profoundly important in the uh, trajectory that my life has taken since we met on the West Coast in 1996. And uh, I am uh, completely and continuously grateful for that impact. So to have this opportunity to um, reflect that just, you know, personally is a nice opportunity and to share maybe some pay it forward in a way to share with your listeners um, some of the lessons I learned from him and how I learned them. That's uh, certainly a nice tribute. So thanks for that opportunity. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.